0: At this high five thing, yeah,
1: we are. Hi, guys, we're back. We're we're back. Um, just uh, the second
0: intros, yeah.
1: Just the thing at the beginning, my body decided to give me a cold yesterday, right before we're recording.
0: And I'm recovering from the massive onslaught of pollen that I experienced in the Ohio Valley. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the state of Kentucky tried to kill me,
1: (laughs) yeah. And the province of Alberta is always trying to kill us. I'm
0: pretty much on a steady diet of antihistamines now, (laughs)
1: yeah. It's like. Oh, you, you have to record tomorrow? I'm going to give you the one thing that fucks up with your voice. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway.
0: That'll be a lot of coughing. Apologies. Yeah. We can fix it in post.
1: <laughs> Yay. Lindsay's back. Yay. Yay. Yeah, she, apparently she had a good time.
0: If you weren't following me on Facebook or, Instagram, I saw Facebook or Instagram, then you probably should if you want to see some fun pictures.
1: Go read her blog post. She made oh, yeah. a really good blog post.
0: Right. The blog is a thing still. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing a schedule. It's happening was released last Monday, check it out, or not last, I guess, well, last Monday as of today, May 9th, yeah. <laughs> um, like what day is it? It uh, was released last week, or this, this week, I guess, yeah, and it was on the Kentucky Derby and some interesting history that everyone should know about, and we're going to keep the blog, the blog going, so we'll have another post coming out near the end of the month, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, continue to check that out.
1: It'll be good. Well, with all that out of the way and our coughing and our sniffling, well, my sniffling. uh,
0: Now that our bellies are full of pizza.
1: (laughs) We're going to jump right into things. Today we're doing a history of the UN. Today's going to be kind of a different format because we do talk quite a bit about the history, but it's also a rundown of what each body's functions are and what its function as a whole is and what it was. It's an interesting... Interesting organization. I mean, it is rather controversial, depending on who you talk to, but we'll get into that a bit later. Anywho, we have to go way, way back when talking. It seems to be a common thing. Add that to the list. Funny,
0: history doesn't happen in a vacuum I know.
1: This is how far back we have to go. The idea for a peaceful community of nations dates back as far as 1795, with the publication of Immanuel Kant's Perpetual Peace, a Philosophical Sketch. He details an organization of states in order to promote international peace. It was first attempted with the Concert of Europe following the Napoleonic Wars, which saw the establishment of the Geneva Conventions regarding humanitarian relief during wartime, plus the proper treatment of wartime prisoners, which is still used today, I'm pretty sure. I'm sure it's been modified since then, but the Geneva Conventions are still...
0: It's There's been, a, yeah, some, like, amendments, but really, for the most part, the Geneva, Geneva Convention is still very much in place.
1: Probably a good thing.
0: Yeah. I <laughs> think we can all agree, probably, yeah.
1: Furthermore, the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 outlined the rules of war and the peacetime settlement of international disputes. So they were basically the guidelines of how to go about both subjects... Historians William H. Harbaugh and Ronald E. Polowski, I probably butchered your names. I'm very sorry. Uh, they credit Theodore Roosevelt as the first American president to propose the establishment of an international league. When accepting the Nobel Prize, Roosevelt stated, quote, it would be a masterstroke if those great powers honestly bent on peace would form a league of peace. When the First World War broke out, Roosevelt proposed the creation of a World League for Peace of Righteousness in order to preserve sovereignty, but also limit armaments and settle conflict through arboration rather than shooting each other. <laughs> During the war, support for the League of Nations increased, particularly among women's suffrage groups, which were staunchly anti-war. Following the First World War, I'm glossing over a lot of stuff, obviously, but following the First World War at the Paris Peace Conference... Part one of the infamous Versailles Treaty established the League of Nations on June 28, 1919. 44 states signed the Covenant of the League of Nations, 31 of which were on the Entente or Allied side of the conflict. Despite being an important figure in the, its creation, the United States never actually joined due to the Republican Congress conflicting with President Woodrow Wilson. This was the first intergovernmental organization with the principal mission created to maintain world peace. Their official languages were English and French. All other languages be damned. First official duty was to mediate the dispute over the Oland Islands of Finland. It had been a part of Russia prior to the October Revolution, but after Finland declared independence, it claimed the islands as part of their territory. However, the majority Swedish population of Holland, they wished to rejoin Sweden.
0: Quick, Quick thing on that. So, like, technically... They weren't really Swedish because technically all Finns at one point were Swedish. So like they're Swedish speaking, but they were always like basically just part of Eastern Finland, which was what all Finns were. Right. Swedes of Eastern, Swedes of Eastern, sorry, Eastern Sweden, not Eastern Finland. Duh. <laughs> they were <laughs> Finns of, e- they were basically just Eastern Sweden until the Russians took them. So, but because they're culturally and linguistically more similar, similar, right. sorry, just.
1: lindsay Spindel. though. You've been, been there. I've been there twice. Okay. So she knows <laughs> about
0: Yeah, I know about Oland. Really Um, really pretty place. Yeah. In
1: 1920, the dispute escalated to the point where the two countries were at the risk of war. The British asked the League to intervene, but had resistance from Finland as they considered it an internal matter. Regardless, the League established... What? They still do. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Regardless, the League established a neutral commission to investigate the dispute and create dialogue between the two sides. In June 1921, the League decided the Olans would remain part of Finland, but the islanders would be guaranteed protection of their language and culture, and the islands would be a, a, from there on in a demilitarized zone. Sweden reluctantly agreed, and the crisis was peacefully resolved. What Lindsay told me when I was discussing this during research, it's still very contentious today.
0: Yeah, so basically, like, Finland is a bilingual country, officially, just like Canada. Their languages are Finnish and Swedish. There's a really large Swedish-speaking population in Finland, even, like, actually on mainland Finland, pretty close to where actually where I lived, in western Finland. And so it's really close to the Åland Islands. And so it's still, yeah, very contentious because the majority of the people there do feel like they're more part of Sweden than they are Finland, but... They're literally between the two, so they just you know do their thing. It's a big port; <laughs> a lot, every cruise ship goes through there between Stockholm and Helsinki. So
1: they have their own devolved kind of parliament, don't they? Yeah,
0: it's kind of like they're almost like a, a separate like province end or state thing. It's a really odd. Well, I've heard it's like one they autonomy, but yeah,
1: I've heard it's kind of one step above a province, but
0: not quite a state.
1: No. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's it's that's what I mean. It's kind of in between. It's a really like they have some control because ultimately they're on their own island. But it's yeah, <laughs> it's a weird situation.
1: Schrodinger's province is both is and isn't. Uh, kind of. independent. Yeah,
0: kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Schrodinger's
1: island. Yeah. The League was also tasked with resolving the dispute over Upper Silesia, once part of Prussia and now claimed by Poland. A plebiscite was organized in the region with... of the population favoring Germany. However, Poland claimed the conditions surrounding the plebiscite were unfair and an uprising in the region erupted in 1921. The League once again intervened with representatives from Belgium, Brazil, China, and Spain sent to study the situation. They recommended Upper Silesia be divided between Germany and Poland on the basis of demographics. Germany ended up with most of the region, but Poland obtained the areas with the majority of the region's resources and industrial capability. This intensified resentment of Poland inside Germany and would later come back to bite the League in the ass. (laughs) There's a lot of foreshadowing here to the Second World War. Several other cases with varying degrees of success. Worth noting, the Saar Protectorate, which was an independent former territory of Prussia under the direct control of the League. It was returned to Germany in 1935 through plebiscite. But yeah, it was an independent country directly controlled by the League. So the League did have territory for a while. (laughs) And it was sort of the, the purpose of it was to be a buffer zone between France and Germany, which I think was needed during that time. Probably still needed now during football this season. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Italian dictator Benito Mussolini sent 400,000 troops to invade Abyssinia, which is modern day Ethiopia, with Italian forces using aerial bombardment and chemical weapons. The league responded with condemnation and sanctions, but the latter was ineffective due to oil still being exported to Italy and the British not closing the Suez Canal to Italian ships. The League's lack of action was mainly due to self-interest within the uh, about the member states. During the Spanish Civil War, Spanish Minister of Foreign Affairs appealed to the League for arms in order to defend the territorial integrity and political independence of Spain. The League declined to intervene, but also banned the use of foreign volunteers from entering the conflict. However, this ban was more symbolic, and they did nothing to stop volunteers from Nazi Germany and Italy aiding the nationalists and the Soviet Union aiding the Republicans. The League's reputation and legacy has been irreparably damaged by this point, with its failure to prevent the Second World War, and there were plenty of opportunities to intervene against Hitler's expansionism. For example, when Hitler ordered the re-militarization of the Rhineland, which is the border between Germany and France... None of his troops had their weapons loaded, and they were ordered to retreat should France show any signs of retaliating. Super helpful. Oh, yeah. Furthermore, during the annexation of Austria, German tanks broke down in the Alps, meaning they were unable to reach their destination. Similar issues happened during the annexation of the Sudetenland and the rest of Czechoslovakia. Had any of the League nations intervened during these times, the Second World War may not have happened because Hitler would have been taken out of action right then and there because to be honest his technology was piss poor. Yeah. German technology at the time was piss poor. Even even uh during the Spanish Civil War when they were sending stuff over there. We'll talk a bit more about that when we eventually get to the Spanish Civil War. But it was just a clusterfuck after clusterfuck of just okay, our tanks aren't working. Not Great. so good. Not
0: so good. They were not the pan- they were not the the same panzers that eventually were feared for their No. Being
1: good. <laughs> They're still working their way out, but we all know that Hitler and the Nazis are a bunch of shitheads, so I, yeah. they deserved it. Anyway,
0: yeah.
1: we gave Wish them a, more of their
0: tanks down. and
1: as uh Stephen Fry would say, we eventually came up and gave them a damn good thrashing. <sighs> Following the outbreak of war, the League's assembly transferred enough power to the Secretary General in order to allow the League to continue to exist as a legal entity. The Palace of Nations, the League's headquarters in Geneva, remained abandoned until the end of the war. However, the League itself did not survive, and it became something we better know today.
0: Yeah. Basically, since the League of Nations crumbled, and World War II happened, and 50 million people died, there was definitely an appetite to create something better than the League, but similar ultimately because there was a need for to restore world order so ultimately what we know now is the United Nations was formed through a series of conferences after World War II the first of these conferences well i guess technically the first of these conferences is uh was the Moscow conference in 1943 and the declaration of the four nations was signed on October 30th at this conference by the big four which were the United States the United Kingdom the Soviet Union and China and this led to essentially, like a loose pact, to create some kind of world organization, and the first conference that was directly part of the formation of the United Nations was the Dumbarton Oaks Conference, which is more formally known as the Washington Conversations on International Peace and Security Organization. Very cumbersome name. <laughs> Dumbarton Oaks is much easier to say. It's much more of a ring to it. But it was an international conference held at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington D.C. from August twelfth, nineteen forty-four, to October seventh, nineteen forty-four. It was ultimately an important step towards addressing Paragraph 4 of that Declaration of the United Nations. It recognized that an international body needed to exist to replace the League of Nations. So the League of Nations wasn't perfect, but we all acknowledged that things were a little better when it was at least working. Um, At the conference, delegations from China, the USSR, the UK, and the US deliberated over proposals for the establishment of an organization to maintain peace and security in the world. The conference was chaired by US Undersecretary of State Edward Stettinus or Statinius, Jr., and U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull delivered the opening address. Conversations were held in two phases since the Soviets were unwilling to meet directly with the Chinese. There's a couple of reasons for this, or suspected reasons, I suppose. Uh, one of them is that Stalin didn't directly see China as a great power. That was certainly one of them. But FDR's suspicion was that the motivation, or Stalin's objections were motivated because he had signed a non-aggression pact with Japan. And by appearing to be allied with China, they were worried, you know, of potential repercussions. I mean, I don't think the Japanese probably ever would have tried to invade the Soviet Union. That was a lot too ambitious, but um, hey, I also don't blame Stalin for being a little paranoid in that case. I would like to preface that I blame Stalin for many things. (laughs) But yeah, in the first phase of the conference, representatives of the Soviet Union, the United States, and the UK convened between August 21st and September 8th. And then a second phase was representatives of China, the UK, and the US, from September 29th to October 7th. So the Russians were okay with working with them as long as they couldn't meet directly with them. You know, you can't give off appearances. The principles of this New World Organization were to be laid down at this in this conference, but the structure of the organization was still ultimately to be determined. The conference was intended to create something of a blueprint in which to follow and served as a proposal for to other countries, so the two major issues that were central in the conference's proceedings were these. The first was about the position the Soviet Union would have uh, within the emergent organization designed to encompass American global power, as FDR's original idea was. So obviously FDR wanted this to be an American spearheaded thing, but he couldn't exactly leave Stalin out. That would be completely defeating the purpose. And the second issue really concerned the veto power of the permanent members of the Security Council, which I'll talk about later. The stated purposes of the international organization were to maintain international peace and security and to that end to take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of the threats to the peace and the suppression of acts of aggression or other breaches of the peace and to bring about by peaceful means adjustment or settlement or of international disputes, which may lead to a breach of peace, to develop friendly relations with other nations and to take other appropriate measures to strengthen universal peace to achieve international cooperation in the solution of international economic, social, and other humanitarian problems, and to afford a center for harmonizing the actions of nations in the achievement of these common ends. On October 7, 1944, the delegates agreed on a tentative set of principles, known as the Proposals for the Establishment of a General International Organization, to meet these goals. The discussions at the conference regarding the makeup of the United Nations included which states would be invited to become members, the formation of the United Nations Security Council, and the right to veto that would be given to permanent members of the Security Council. Charles E. Bolin writes that the Dummerton oaks Conference settled all but two two issues regarding the organization of the United Nations. The voting procedure in the Security Council and the Soviet pressure for the admission of all 16 of the Soviet Republics to the General Assembly. Apparently, it never occurred to anyone on the American side to counter with a proposal that all 48 of the U.S. states be admitted to the General Assembly. But, you know, here we were. Um, It took the conference (laughs) at Yalta, plus further negotiations with Moscow, before those issues were resolved. So, that was the first conference, but then that led directly to the next conference, which took place in San Francisco, California, in 1945. Forty-six nations, including the four sponsors, the USA, USSR, UK, and China, were originally invited to the San Francisco Conference, All the nations that were invited were the ones who had either subscribed to the UN Charter already, so the four founders, or had declared war on Germany and Japan. But there was a lot of discussion about the entry of Argentina due to its fascist government and welcoming of Nazis fleeing prosecution. Poland also did not send a representative because the composition of its new government was not announced until too late for the conference. Therefore, a space was left for the signature of Poland, one of the original signatories of the United Nations Declaration. At the time of the conference, there was no generally recognized Polish government, but on June 28th, such a government was announced, and on October 15th, 1945, Poland signed the charter, thus becoming one of the original members. The conference itself invited four other states, the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, the Ukrainian Soviet Soviet Socialist Republic, and newly liberated Denmark and Argentina. This made delegations from 50 nations in all, representing over 80% of the world's population, people of every race, religion, and continent. They met to discuss the proposals from Dumberton Oaks and, working on that, had to produce a charter acceptable to all countries. There were 850 total delegates, and their advisors and staff together with the secretariat brought the total to 3,500 people. There were an additional 2,500 press, radio, newsreel representatives and observers from many societies and organizations. So there was something like 6,000 people at this conference. In all, the San Francisco conference was not only one of the most important in history, but also possibly the largest international gathering to take place. I don't know whether or not the Paris Climate Accord has now won up to that, because I know the physical number of people at that was really large. So either way, this was a massive conference and possibly one of the biggest ever. The heads of the delegations of the sponsoring countries took turns as chairman of the plenary meetings, Anthony Eden of Britain, Edward Stettinius of the United States, T.V. Soong of China, and Vyacheslav Molotov of the Soviet Union. At the later meetings, Lord Halifax deputized for Mr. Eden, V.K. Wellington Koo for T.V. Soong, and Mr. Gromyko for Mr. Molotov. Plenary meetings are usually the final stages of these conferences, so before that, there was a number of stages of preparatory committees which created propositions and that would eventually reach the full gathering to vote. Every section of the charter had to be and was passed by a two-thirds majority. The conference formed a, quote, steering committee, composed of the heads of all the delegations. This committee decided all matters of major principle and policy. But since there were 50 member states involved, the committee would be at least 50 strong. Anyone who has done any group work knows that 50 people is a lot too many to do anything, really. Especially group work. (laughs) So... Therefore, an executive committee of 14 heads of delegations were chosen to prepare the recommendations for the steering committee. Then the charter was divided into four sections, each of which was considered by a commission. Commission 1 dealt with the general purposes of the organization, its principles, membership, the secretary, and the subject of the amendments to the charter. Commission 2 considers the powers and responsibilities of the General Assembly, while Commission 3 took up the Security Council. Commission 4 worked on a draft for the statute of the International Court of Justice. Each commission was subdivided into 12 technical committees, and this seems really complicated, but given the sheer size of everybody and like the number of people involved, it was actually the most efficient way to do it. It just seems really complicated. <laughs> the draft was prepared by a 44-nation committee of jurists, which had met in Washington in April 1945. There were only 10 plenary meetings of all the delegates, but nearly 400 meetings of the committees at which every line and comma were hammered out. It's... More than semantics, too, that were banged out at these meetings, there was a lot of clashes over actual content. So, for example, there was the question of the status of, quote, regional organizations. Many countries had their own arrangements for regional defense and mutual assistance. The inter-American system and the Arab League at the time were examples. NATO has become another example. (laughs) Also formed in this period. The conference decided to give them part in peaceful settlement and also in certain circumstances and enforcement measures, provided the aims and acts of these groups accorded with the aims of the purposes of the UN. So this happens all the time now with NATO. So NATO typically acts with the UN to try and essentially help. It's a, a separate entity that will work with it. Now, if it worked against the UN, it would be different. They wouldn't include them. The League of Nations had provided machinery for the revision of treaties between the members, but it was unclear whether the UN would enact similar provisions. The conference finally agreed that treaties made after the formation of the United Nations should be registered with the Secretariat and published by it. Nothing specifically was mentioned on the subject of revisions, but that revisions could be recommended by the General Assembly in the course of investigation of any situation requiring peaceful, peaceful adjustment. The conference also added another chapter not dealt with at Dumberton Oaks. Proposals creating a system for territories placed under United Nations trusteeship. This led to a very heated debate. The questions essentially were, should the aim of the trusteeship be defined as, quote, independence or, quote, self-government for the peoples of those areas? If independence, what about areas too small to ever stand on their own legs for defense? It was finally recommended that the promotion of the progressive development of the peoples of trust should be directed towards, quote, independence or self-government. So, kind of vague, but situational. Considerable debate also took power over the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, and the conference decided that the member nations would not be compelled to accept the court's jurisdiction but might voluntarily declare their acceptance of compulsory jurisdiction. Still pretty problematic, because it leaves the court a little bit toothless. Above all, the right of each of the Big Five to exercise a veto on action by the powerful Security Council provoked long and heated debate. At one point, the debate over vetoes was so fierce it threatened to break up the conference. Which would have been really bad, (laughs) So smaller powers feared that when one of the Big Five menaced the peace, the Security Council would be powerless to act. Well, in the event of a clash between powers there would not be that were not permanent members of the Security Council, the Big Five would act ar- arbitrarily. So they strove to have the power of the veto reduced. As a result, the Big Five fought hard, um, obviously, and unanimously insisted on this provision as vital, and emphasized that the main responsibility for maintaining world peace would fall on most heavily on them which eventually becomes true when all of them have nuclear weapons. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was already true to begin with. They were the ones who really, for the most part, were going to be defending the world. But yeah, especially now with nuclear weapons, very relevant.
1: Defending.
0: Yeah. Yeah, air quotes around defending. Anyway, eventually the smaller powers conceded to the point in interest of setting up the UN in the first place. Basically, it was like either we die on this hill or we actually just allow the UN to happen because we want it more than we want this to happen other vital issues were resolved only because every nation was determined to set up at least the best possible organization that could be made if it couldn't be perfect so i mean it's fair you can't make a perfect international organization but it's better to have one than zero uh on june 25th the delegates met in full session at the opera house in san francisco for the last meeting it was provided presided over by by Lord Halifax, who understood the gravity of the moment, saying, quote, This issue upon which we are about to vote is as important as any we shall ever vote in our lifetime. Noting the importance of the occasion, he suggested that it would be appropriate to depart from the customary show of hands, with members standing to vote to show a yay vote. As the issue was brought to vote, all who were present, delegates, staffs, 3,000-plus visitors, (laughs) stood and erupted in cheers as the chairman announced that the charter had passed unanimously. The next day, the charter was signed at in the auditorium of the Veterans Memorial Hall. The delegates filed up one by one to a big round table where the charter and the statute of the International Court of Justice lay in two historic volumes. Behind each delegate stood other members of the delegation in front of a semicircle of flags of 50 nations. Since China was the first victim of aggression by an Axis power, they were given the honor of signing the document first. Upon its passage, President Harry S. Truman addressed the final session saying, quote, the Charter of the United Nations, which you just signed, is a solid structure upon which we can build a better world. History will honor you for it. Between the victory in Europe and the final victory, in this most destructive of all wars, you have won a victory against war itself. With this charter, the world can begin to look forward to the time when all worthy human beings may be per- permitted to live decently as free people. End quote. He then pointed out that the Charter would only work if the peoples of the world who were determined to make it work. He concluded, quote, If we should fail to use it, we shall betray all of those who have died so that we might meet here in freedom and safety to create it. If we seek to use it selfishly, for the advantage of any one nation or any small groups of nations, we shall be equally guilty of that betrayal. The UN did not, however, come into existence at the signing of the Charter. In many countries, the Charter had to be approved by their Congresses or Parliaments. It had therefore been decided that the charter would come into force when the governments of China, France, Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States, and a majority of the other signatories had ratified it and notified the State Department of the United States. On October 24th, 1945, this condition was fulfilled and the United Nations came into existence. There we And there we are. Now we have the UN. But I actually just, like, quickly want to touch on Harry Truman's words. He's not wrong. (laughs) Like, I mean, obviously, that's kind of an understatement, but, or obvious, but it's true, though. I mean... It only will work if we follow it and make, are determined to make it work, because that's what happened in the League of Nations. Not everyone was determined to make it work, and therefore it did not work. So,
1: yeah. So now we get into the portion where we're mostly going to be discussing how each body within the UN operates. So the main one that we need to talk about is the General Assembly, which is the main debating organ, which is responsible for policy making and representation of the member states, where they can debate and implement policy based on the recommendations of the other bodies. All one hundred and ninety-three members of the United Nations are members of the General Assembly, as well as several non-member observer states, which include the Holy See or which is what Vatican's that's Vatican City. If you want to know the confusion around that, watch C.G.B. Gray's video on Vatican City. And then the second one is the State of Palestine, which I don't know if you remember, Lindsay, how controversial that was when that happened. When the State of Palestine was granted.
0: I sure
1: do. Yeah, both the Holy See and the State of Palestine, they don't have voting rights within the Assembly. And uh, the State of Palestine, I just thought I'd touch in on the State of Palestine because their entry into the UN is actually quite interesting. They were first accepted as a non-state observer in 1975 as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which I don't even need to point out how controversial that is. I mean, no matter what we say about either Israel or Palestine, it's going to be controversial to somebody. Don't shoot the messengers, people, please. And then it was later accepted as non-member state observer in 2012 as the state of Palestine, which... As we mentioned, caused quite the stir. The European Union is also given an observer seat and also granted the right to speak on behalf of any of its member states that are not present at that time. So, say if Austria, the Austrian delegation, can't make it to the assembly meeting that day, they can ask the the European Union to speak on their behalf. But they can't vote. The European Union can't vote. Furthermore, other intergovernmental organizations have observer seats, including the African Union, the Arab League, Organization of American States, etc., etc. In total, there are seventy-five intergovernmental organizations that have observer seats within the General Assembly. Even furthermore, there is also seats for the International Olympic Committee, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, which is not to be confused with the Republic of Malta. Literally, this. Sovereign Military Order Malta is a building that's leased out by the Italian government to these group of people that have sovereign status, but they have no territory except the leased building in the middle of Rome. But anyway, it's a religious order. The Red Cross/the slash the Red Crescent have a seat there and then there are plenty of others that we don't need to go into. You can just find a list somewhere. There's a lot. The functions are outlined in the Millennium Declaration of 2000 and they include and these are actually from the declaration itself. One, to reach specific goals to attain peace, security, and disarmament, along with development and poverty eradication. Two, to safeguard human rights and to promote rule of law. Three, to protect our common environment. Four, to meet the special needs of Africa. And five, to strengthen the United Nations. I love how Africa gets its, a special, like, it gets a special mention there because, like, to let's be honest, Africa has been, like, so, yeah, it's like, <laughs> no offense to Africa, but yeah, the there's like, and obviously it's not Africa's fault. No, no. <laughs> but they, it's just that they, like, they're specifically mentioned in the charter that we need to boost these guys up now.
0: Yeah. Like a big, something I was reading quick, a big thing in the formation of the United Nations was that there was a recognition amongst the founders that there was not nearly enough representation of colonized people in the League of Nations. So, like, 80% of the world's population was not represented. And that was something they wanted to change, which for, I mean, all of the ironies of people forming the United Nations being (laughs) colonists, it's still a really admirable, like, recognition.
1: Yeah, and also it's the United Nations that led the push for decolonization during, which is why we saw a bunch of decolonization in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So the charter grants the General Assembly the ability to, one, consider and approve the United Nations budget and establish the financial assessments of member states, two, Elect the non-permanent members of the Security Council and the members of the other United Nations councils and organs, and on the recommendation of the Security Council, appoint the Secretary General. 3. Consider and make recommendations on the general principles of cooperation for maintaining international peace and security, including disarmament. Discuss any questions relating to international peace and security and except where dispute or situation is currently being discussed by the Security Council, make recommendations on it. Discuss with the same exception and make recommendations on any questions within the scope of the Charter or affecting the powers and functions of any organ in the United Nations. Initiate studies and make recommendations to promote international political cooperation, the development and codification of international law, the realization of human rights and fundamental freedoms, and international collaboration in the economic, social, humanitarian, cultural, educational, and health fields. Make recommendations for the peaceful settlement of any situation that might impair friendly relations amongst countries. And finally... Consider reports from the Security Council and other United Nations organs. That's probably a lot to follow, and I apologize. In times where the Security Council fails to act due to a negative vote, the General Assembly can take action when a threat to peace, breach of peace, or act of aggression occurs, as stated by the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 377, which is also known as the Uniting for Peace Resolution, of November 3, 1950. All voting members states have equal voting power within the General Assembly, and none of the big five, I guess, are allowed to use their veto power within the General Assembly. Votes concerning important issues, usually relating related to recommendations on peace and security elections of the Security Council and the Economic and Social Council members and budgets, require a two-thirds majority, while most other questions are decided by a simple majority. Effort has been made to achieve consensus on issues rather than by formal voting to make decisions, have been made in recent years, and the president may propose to adopt a resolution without vote after consulting and making an agreement with the delegations. Sessions are usually from January to August, within a short break, and then re- recommence from September to December each year. The General Assembly also includes several subsidiary organs consisting of boards, which include the Board of Auditors and the Executive Board of the United Nations Children's Fund, commissions, which, are, which include the Disarmament Commission or the International Law Commission, committees, which include the Investments Committee, Special Committee on Peacekeeping Operations, assemblies and councils, which include the United Nations Environment Assembly for the United Nations Environment Programme, Human right, and the Human Rights Council, and working groups, which include the Joint Inspection Unit.
0: So, with that, probably one of the more... Well, I'm going to say the most important part of the UN, but I don't know that it actually is, but it's pretty close. It could be really well argued that it's the most important organization of the United Nations, which is the Security Council. Ultimately, the UN's role in international collective security is defined by the UN Charter, which authorizes the Security Council to investigate any situation-threatening international peace. Recommend procedures for peaceful resolution of a dispute, call upon other member nations to completely or partially interrupt economic relations as they see, as well as sea, air, postal, and radio communications, or to sever diplomatic relations, and enforce its decisions militarily or by any means necessary. The Security Council also recommends the new Secretary General to the General Assembly and recommends new states for admission as member states of the United Nations. The Security Council has traditionally interpreted its mandate as covering only military security, though U.S. Ambassador Richard Holbrook controversially persuaded the body to pass a resolution on HIV-AIDS in Africa in 2000. Under Chapter 6 of the Charter, Pacific Settlement of Disputes, the Security Council may investigate any dispute or any situation which might lead to international friction or give rise to a dispute. The Council may recommend appropriate procedures or methods of adjustment if it determines that the situation might endanger international peace and security. These recommendations are generally considered to not be binding as they lack an enforcement mechanism. Under Chapter 7, the Council has broader power to decide what measures are to be taken in situations involving threats to peace, breaches of peace, or acts of aggression. In such situations, the Council is not limited to recommendations but may take action, including those the use of armed force to, quote, maintain or restore international peace and security. But the Security Council ultimately uh, kind of stems out of a bunch of treaty organizations that existed before the League of Nations even existed. The idea behind collective security isn't new, like Jonah talked about at the very beginning. <laughs> I've been wanting to do this for a long time. So the League of Nations was the, the first attempt, and it managed to settle a number of disputes, but it lacked representation for colonial peoples, half the world's population, and significant participation from major several major powers, so that really is what made it not useful. But as early as 1939, FDR and the U.S. State Department were attempting to plan out a new world organization, Uh, FDR coined the term United Nations in reference to allied nations. And on New Year's Day 1942, the USSR, US, China, and Britain signed the UN Declaration as we talked about, But as more nations were added. But the the main four were kind of known as the four policemen. And then it got changed to the big five once France got added. But fun story. So the Security Council obviously was a dominant issue at the Dumberton Oaks Conference. And France got added to the, the four policemen group to become the big five to become the permanent members of the council. The U.S. actually attempted to add Brazil to the Permanent Security Council, but they were opposed by the heads of the Soviet and British delegations. It didn't really give a reason why exactly, and frankly I didn't look that hard, but I find it interesting that the U.S. wanted to make it a six-man, or a six, uh, six-nation 6 council. But obviously the veto rights were the most contentious. So the USSR contended that each nation should have an absolute veto that could excuse me, block matters from even being discussed while the British argued that nations should not be able to veto resolutions on disputes to which they were a party. At the Yalta Conference in 1945, the American, British, and Russian delegations agreed that each of the, quote, big five could veto any action by the council but not procedural resolutions, meaning that the permanent members could not prevent debate on a resolution. As I mentioned, the debate in San Francisco uh, was really fierce, with an Australian delegate pushing to further limit the veto power, but he was due to fears it would kill the conference. His proposal was defeated by 20 votes to 10. On January 17, 1946, the Security Council met for the first time at Church House in Westminster, London, UK. The Security Council was largely paralyzed in its early decades because of the Cold War, because it essentially was divided over the conflict. (laughs) As a result, the council was only able to intervene in unrelated conflicts for the most part, but a notable exception was during a nineteen was a 1950 Security Council resolution that authorized a U.S.-led coalition to repel the North Korean invasion of South Korea, and this was passed in the absence of the USSR, and that's why it was passed in the first place.
1: Flashback to the Korean War episode.
0: Yeah. In 1956, the first UN peacekeeping force was established and the Suez Crisis, but the UN in the same year, though, was unable to intervene against the USSR's simultaneous invasion of Hungary following that country's revolution. So it's kind of good proof that, like, we can do one thing, but we also can't hold each other. It kind of speaks up to those fears that smaller nations had of if one of the big five is involved, how do we deal with it? (laughs) Because you can't, because they have veto power. But the committee ultimately continued to exist, but largely it's abandoned its work in the mid-1950s. So, on paper, the Security Council was there in the 50s, but by the end, it was like, they're not really doing anything. Mm -hmm. But in 1960, the UN deployed the un United Nations operation in Congo, which was the largest military force of its early decades, to restore the breakaway state of Katanga, restoring it to the control of the Democratic Republic of the Congo by 1964. The Security Council found itself bypassed in favor of direct negotiations between the superpowers and some of the decades larger council or sorry decades larger conflicts such as the Cuban missile crisis and Vietnam war. They focused instead on smaller conflicts without an immediate cold war connection so they deployed the United Nations Temporary Executive Authority in West New Guinea in 62 and the United Nations peacekeeping force in Cyprus, shout out John, in 1964. <laughs> the latter of which would become the UN's longest-running peace- peacekeeping missions. We got told that we had to mention Cyprus, or...
1: I'll, I'll, I'll mention it a bit more later. Good.
0: I'll let you explain that. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, man. In October 1971, over U.S. opposition, but with the support of many third-world nations, the mainland pe- com- or the mainland Communist People's Republic of China was given the Chinese seat on the Security Council in place of Taiwan. The vote was widely seen as a sign of waning U.S. influence in the organization, and with an increasing third-world presence and the failure of the U.N. mediation and conflicts in the Middle East, Vietnam, and Kashmir, the U.N. increasingly shifted its attention to its ostensibly secondary goals of economic development and cultural exchange. So, at this point, the Security Council is, like, pretty much not doing anything, but... Yeah, by the, UN, the, by the 1970s, the UN budget for social and economic development was far greater than its budget for peacekeeping. So the Security Council was really not doing a lot. But after the Cold War, there was a dramatic increase in peacekeeping duties. Between 1988 and 2000, the number of adopted Security Council resolutions more than doubled, and the peacekeeping budget increased more than tenfold. So they, the U.N. negotiated an end to the Salvadoran Civil War, launched a successful peacekeeping mission in Namibia, oversaw democratic elections in post-apartheid South Africa and post-Khmer Rouge Cambodia. In 91, the Security Council demonstrated its renewed vigor by condemning the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait on the same day of the attack and later authorizing a U.S.-led coalition that successfully repulsed the Iraqis. Under Secretary General Brian Urquhart later described the hopes raised by these successes as, quote, A false renaissance for the organization, given the more troubled missions that would follow, such as Bosnia, which we talked about last season, and Rwanda, which we're actually going to talk about next. So, yeah. That's where the Security Council's at. They pretty much just deal with peacekeeping stuff now, (laughs) for the most part. But they also were involved in things like the er, non-proliferation treaties, since all of them are nuclear powers. In 2014, Egypt presented a motion proposing an expansion of the Non-Proliferation Treaty to include Israel and Iran. This proposal was due to increasing hostilities and in the destruction in the Middle East connected to the Syrian conflict as well as others. All members of the Security Council are signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and are all nuclear weapons states. So here we are.
1: <laughs> okay, so now we're moving on to what is known as the UN Secretariat. It's not a horse. I did buy a secretariat mug, though. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna be the horse secretary. Yeah, probably gonna be making Kentucky-related jokes for a couple of weeks. Anyway, so this the UN Secretariat is the executive of the United Nations, and it is tasked with setting the agenda, deliberation, and decision-making in the other UN bodies. I'm gonna butcher this name, but the second UN Secretary General. Dag of Nor I think he's Norwegian, yes, stated, yes. quote, The United Nations is what member nations made it, but within the limits set by government action and government cooperation, much depends on what the secretariat makes it. It has creative capability. It can introduce new ideas. It can, in proper forms, take initiatives. It can put before member governments' findings, which will influence their actions. End quote. So it is headed by the Secretary General, who acts as the Chief Administrative Officer of the United Nations, and he makes annual reports to the General Assembly and may inform the Security Council on issues which they deem to be a threat to international peace and security. However, the Charter doesn't go much more into detail than this, and the actual roles of the Secretary General have been left to interpretation by each holder. Some more active, while others not so much. Currently held by Antonio Guterres of Portugal, who is a former Portuguese Prime Minister and the former UN High Commissioner for Refuge- Refugees. Before that, it was held by Ban Ki-moon until 2017, and before that, it was, owned, it was held by Kofi Annan. Who's probably the most famous UN Secretary General? I may be wrong.
0: Ban Ki moon's pretty p- famous now.
1: Yeah, but I think of, if you ask oh, anyone yeah. Kofi Kofi the main Anand's one, it's going to be Kofi Annan. Yeah. yeah, Ban Ki moon's from South Korea, and then Kofi Annan is from Ghana. Aside from the executive office of the Secretary General, several other offices include the UN Office of Internal Oversight, the UN Office of Legal Affairs, the UN Office of Disarmament Affairs. U.N. Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, U.N. Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, Office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime, U.N. Office of the High Representative for the Least Developed Countries, Landlocked Developing Countries, and Small Island Developing Countries, which could you imagine having to announce, oh, my role is this. (laughs)
0: That's quite the
1: title. Yeah. That's
0: not going to fit on a business card.
1: No. You might as well just call yourself Overlord. And the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, which I think is just awesome.
0: That's the greatest thing ever.
1: I don't know what that would entail, but that sounds rad. It also includes several departments, which include the Department of Political Affairs, Department of Peacekeeping Operations, which I'll get to in a bit, Department of Economic and Social Affairs, which I'll also get to in a bit, the Department of Field Support, Department of Management, Department of General Assembly and Conference Management, UN Department of Global Communications, and the Department of Safety and Security. Currently has over 44,000 international civil servants in its employment, so it's huge.
0: Yeah, the UN is a uh, shocking, a large organization. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so the other, th- I guess the next... Major part of the UN is the International Court of Justice, which is not to be confused with the International Criminal Court. I'll explain the difference in a minute. But the League of Nations... Again, we're going back to League of Nations. <laughs> the League of Nations had called for the establishment of a Permanent Court of International Justice, or PCIJ, as I will be calling it, uh, which <laughs> would be responsible for adjudicating any international dispute submitted to it by the contesting parties, as well as to provide an advisory opinion upon any dispute or question referred to it by the League of Nations. In December 1920, following the several drafts and debates, the Assembly of the League, which I assume was basically the General Assembly of the League of Nations, unanimously adopted the statute of the PCJI, which was signed and ratified the following year by a majority of members. Among other things, the new statute resolved the contentious issues of selecting judges by providing that the judges be elected by both the Council and the Assembly of the League concurrently but independently. So the reason I'm going back all the way to the League of Nations is because the New court is pretty much the same as the old court, so this explains a lot of it.
1: Same place and everything? Yeah. Okay.
0: The makeup of the court would reflect the main forms of civilization and the principal legal systems of the world, and would be permanently replaced at the Peace Palace in The Hague alongside the Permanent Court of Arbitration. The International Criminal Court is also in The Hague, but again, different. (laughs) It represented a major innovation in international jurisprudence in several ways. One, unlike previous international tribunals, it was a permanent body governed by its own statutory provisions and rules of procedure. Two, it had a permanent registry that served as a liaison with governments and international bodies. Three, its proceedings were largely public, including pleadings, oral arguments, and all documentary evidence. Four, it was accessible to all states and could be declared by states to have compulsory jurisdiction over disputes. Five, the PCIJ statute was the first to list the sources of law it would draw upon, which in turn became sources of international law. Six, judges were more representative of the world and its legal systems than any prior international judicial body, which, to be fair, probably wasn't that hard. Um, And seven, as a permanent body, the court would, over time, make a series of decisions and rulings that would develop international law. From its first session in 1922 until 1940, the PCIJ dealt with 29 interstate disputes and it issued 27 advisory opinions. The court's widespread acceptance was reflected by the fact that several hundred international treaties and re- agreements conferred jurisdiction upon it over specified categories. In addition to helping resolve several serious international disputes, the PCIJ helped clarify several ambiguities in international law contributed to its development. So by all accounts, this court was actually quite successful. <laughs> Following a peak of activity in nineteen thirty three, the PCIJ began to decline its activities due to growing international tensions and isolationism, so it struggled to deal with all of the Nazi expansion all the same issues the League of Nations had dealing with Nazi expansionism, etc., the court also had. And people were less willing to participate because isolationism. World War II effectively put an end to the court, which held its last public session on december nineteen thirty nine, and it issued its last orders on february nineteen forty. In 1942, the U.S. and U.K. jointly declared support for re-establishing an international court after the war. And in 1943, the U.K. chaired a panel of jurists from around the world, known as the Inter-Allied Committee, to discuss the matter. In a 1944 report, they recommended that the statute of any new international court uh, should be based on that of the PCIJ. New court should retain an advisory jurisdiction, and it should be voluntary. And three, the court should deal only with the judicial and not political matters. At a conference of the major allied powers, several months later, they issued a joint declaration recognizing the necessity of establishing the earliest practicable date a general international organization based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all peace-loving states, open to membership by all such states, large and small, for the maintenance of international peace and security. Uh, the court came up at Dumbarton Oaks in San Francisco, and San Francisco, with the statute of the court being an integral part to the UN Charter. So... When I said they signed the charter, they also had to sign the statute of the International Court, and they were two separate documents, but they were signed on the same day. The new court was to be based on the PCIJ, and in October 1944, the PCIJ convened for the last time and resolved to transfer its archives to its successor, which would take its place at the Peace Palace. The judges resigned on January 31, 1946, with the election of the first members of the International Court of Justice taking place, the following February at the first session of the United Nations General Assembly and Security Council. In 1946, the PCIJ was formally dissolved and the ICJ, the International Criminal or International Court of Justice, in its first meeting elected Jose Gustavo Guerrero of El Salvador as its president. He had served as the last president of the PCIJ. The court also appointed members of its registry drawn largely from the PCIJ and held an inaugural public sitting later that month. So yeah, it was pretty much all the same people and It was just essentially changing the name, and it also adjusted the charter and stuff a bit. The first case was submitted to the ICJ in May 1947 by the United Kingdom against Albania concerning incidents in the Corfu Channel. The International Court of Justice is made up of 15 judges elected to nine-year terms by the UN General Assembly and the UN Security Council from a list of people nominated by the national groups in the Permanent Court of Arbitration. It is, quote, governed. Uh, air quotes around governed, but it's governed by the statute of the International Court of Justice, with rules for elections being laid out in Articles 4 through 19. Elections are staggered with five judges elected every three years to ensure continuity within the court. Should a judge die in office, the practice has generally been to elect a judge in a special election to complete the term. No two judges may be nationals from the same country, as the court is supposed to represent, quote, the main forms of civilization of the principal legal systems of the world. Essentially, that has meant that common law, civil law, and post-communist law, which was previously socialist law, are recognized, so all the legal systems used in the major places. There's an informal understanding that the seats would be distributed by geographic regions so that there are five seats for Western countries, three for African states, including one judge of Francophone civil law, one of Anglophone common law, and one Arab, two Eastern European states, three for Asian states, and two for Latin American and Caribbean states. For most of the court's history, the five permanent members of the Security Council have always had a judge serving, thereby occupying three of the Western seats, one of the Asian seats, and one of the Eastern European seats. There have been some exceptions, but for the most part, that's been the case. The court's current president is Abdul-Khawai Ahmed Yasuf of Somalia. I'm really sorry. And uh, Shui Hankin of China. Also, sorry if I just butchered that as vice president. The International Court of Justice is separate from the International Criminal Court, like I said. Uh, The ICJ deals with nation states and not individual people. So it's really just dissolving or, like, resolving disputes between two countries, not between any of the specific people. The International Criminal Court, on the other hand, investigates and punishes people for crimes against humanity, genocide, and other war crimes, etc. So the ICJ issues rulings more over, I think, territory disputes and that kind of thing whereas the criminal court is actually dealing with criminal proceedings. So they are separate. But they do work together, I imagine. Otherwise, people wouldn't be prosecuted. So, yeah, so that's the court. For the most part, I think it still sort of has the same problems as the International Criminal Court. The only difference is that the International Court of Justice is at least acknowledged by the United States. And that makes a big difference. The International Criminal Court has not. So... That's a big problem.
1: If you guys remember from the Yugoslav episodes, I think it was the last episode of the Yugoslav wars, we kind of got a little arm wavingly angry at how yeah. little support the ICC has. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. At least the International Court of Justice isn't nearly as toothless, but yeah. I think it probably still faces some of the same problems because it did have those types of problems with... Uh, one of the biggest ones actually was when Nicaragua launched something against the United States in the eighties after the uh, shadow war. So there's been a few instances of it not really going great between the court and the security council. It's kind of meant to be a checks and balance situation and it is, but it also does definitely create problems because the U S vetoed their decision in that case.
1: Right. Yeah. That's yeah. It's so, frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> we could go on about frustrating veto Frustrating,
0: especially if you're Nicaragua. <laughs> yeah. And your government's just been deposed.
1: I mean, I'm going to say it right now. I think, like, having researched this whole thing, veto power is bullshit. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it's not like a, po- a small podcast from <laughs> Alberta is going to yeah. make a difference. But anyway, so we're going to move on to what's called the Economic and Social Council, also known as ECOSOC. Or I'm pretty sure I'm the only one in the world who calls it that. You probably aren't. Okay.
0: There's so So, many abbreviations of everything.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. But uh, it's charged with the coordination of economic and social fields of the UN. (laughs) Pretty self-explanatory. So it has uh, 45 members on a rotating basis. Each member has a two-year tenure. Canada is actually one of the current members right now, This is the, although next year they won't be a member, and the, even the top five are not permanent members on this board. Several functional commissions in ECOSOC, they include the UN Commission for Social Development, Commission on Narcotic Drugs, Commission on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice, Commission on Science and Technology for Development, or CSTD, the UN Commission on the Status of Women, Commission on Population and Development, UN Statistical Commission, and the United Nations Forum on Forests. So this is, ECOSOC is like, whenever you hear about all oh, the, like, these are UN statistics, they are usually done by people within, like, from a department within this, uh, within ECOSOC. They also have an m- ungodly number of specialized agencies, and I'm not going to list them all, because we would be here all, all day but they include the international monetary fund or IMF and the world bank which group which both have their own uh issues and criticism which i have to say is fair <laughs> and i think
0: a lot of the criticisms of the un are for the most part pretty fair
1: for the most part yeah but especially like but i like when you talk about the international monetary fund and the world bank yeah. n- never ever flattering
0: no not so much
1: but also it includes the World Health Organization, which I did not know until the, until now. Also, UNICEF is a related entity who reports to ECOSOC. And for those of you who do not know what UNICEF is, it is the United Nations International Children's Education Fund. If you remember back in the day when you'd go trick-or-treating, some people would have those boxes. Yeah, the UNICEF boxes.
0: I wonder, if those, I wonder if those still exist. I
1: don't know. I honestly People don't know. People who have
0: kids that still trick or treat, please uh, submit in the comments and tell us whether or not <laughs> UNICEF boxes still exist.
1: Anyone still trick or treat? Everyone's still worried about a razor blade in their apple. But anyway. <laughs> so the current president is Inga Rhonda King of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which I've known that this country exists. And every single time I like hear this country, it sounds like the name of a funk band.
0: <laughs> or a drink.
1: Or a drink. Well, I just think of Grenadine. But <laughs> yeah, but I, I think of a band as like.
0: For sure, a band name, for sure.
1: Fronted by St. Vincent. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the president is a one year term and it is elected by the council members. All organizations within ECOSOC gather statistical information regarding their respective focuses and formulate policy aimed at addressing international economic and social issues and make recommendation on how to improve these conditions. However, the final say is usually with the Security Council or the General Assembly. So that's all I have to say about ECOSOC because that's essentially what they do. And I mean, I could go into detail about the separate organizations, but again, we would be here for a year. But yeah, so we're going to move on to what is probably the most known aspect of the United Nations, which is the peacekeeping forces. So it is defined as, quote, a unique and dynamic instrument developed by the organization as a way to help countries torn by conflict to create the conditions for lasting peace, end quote. And that is a quote taken directly from the website of the UN.
0: The UN website was insanely helpful. It was
1: balla. Like, it was on ball. It was...
0: It also then just provided you to other good sources. So it's yeah. like, yay.
1: I can't fucking believe I just said Bala. Anyway. you yeah, did.
0: Hold on. Here we are.
1: <laughs> so it's actually founded in 1948 and peacekeepers of the member nation's armed forces, gendarmes, and police from the UN member states who act to monitor and observe peace processes in post-conflict zones and to aid former combatants to formulate a peace agreement and put said agreements into practice. My friend John, who Lindsay briefly shouted out, he's in the Canadian Army and he only served in peacekeeping missions when he was overseas. I'll get to what he served in in the end. But basically what he said is we are meant to act as a buffer between the two sides. We are meant to not necessarily separate the two sides, but to make sure they're not like the conflict doesn't rise again. So despite being probably the most well-known part of the UN, peacekeepers are not actually in the Charter. Chapter 6 of the Charter details what measures the UN has to settle disputes, while Chapter 7 iterates both military and non-military actions the organization can take. Both chapters permit the UN to deploy personnel in special circumstances, but peacekeepers are not actually mentioned by name in the Charter. At least not yet. I mean, they could probably amended at any time but the first peacekeeping mission was the UN Truce Supervision Organization or UNTSO in May 1948 sent to monitor the armistice between Israel and its Arab neighbors following the Israeli war of independence the following year they were sent to the India-Pakistan border to monitor the ceasefire between over the conflict of between India and Pakistan over Kashmir Both missions are actually still in operation today. (laughs) They are the oldest running operations that the UN has, the the oldest running peacekeeping operations. During the Cold War, as Lindsay mentioned, members of the Security Council on Opposing Sides frequently clashed, preventing any agreements on peacekeeping resolutions due to the veto power of the Permanent Five. During the Suez Crisis of 19. Egypt attempted to retake control of the Suez canal from the British and the French. The latter two made an agreement with Israel to form a coalition to invade Egypt and retake control of the canal. And the Israeli British and French easily retook control of the canal from the Egyptians. However, international support went to Egypt with both the Americans and Soviets in agreement. The British French and Israelis were in the wrong. The UN General Assembly worked to develop a solution between the two sides and eventually then-Canadian Secretary of State for External Affairs, Lester B. Pearson, later Prime Minister, recommended sending a peacekeeping force to Egypt to mediate and observe the withdrawal of coalition forces from the Suez Canal Zone. It was approved and became the first peacekeeping force mission known as the UN Emergency Force. The first was between 1956 and 1967, and the second was from 1973 to 1979, following the Yom Kippur War. It's also the first time that peacekeepers were sent into this area wearing the blue helmets, because it was actually Lester Pearson's idea. He says, "Well, we're not going to send them looking like military.
0: No, because they're we'll, just going to get shot at. <laughs> yeah,
1: we'll send them with blue helmets so that they know we're the peacemaker or we're the peacekeepers.
0: Bless you, Pearson."
1: So, in total, there was 72 missions, 57 of which are completed, and a f- further 15 are ongoing. They've operated on every single continent except for South America and Australia and New Zealand. So, famous missions include U- UNEF 1 and 2, which was in Egypt, the UN Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. Shout out to John. John was stationed in Cyprus, and he...
0: Forced fr- us to acknowledge this mission. No. <laughs> yeah. he
1: he In quotes, he said... If you don't mention Cyprus, I'm going to be mad. Ooh.
0: So we mentioned it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, the UN Protection Force or UN Perfor, which go back and listen to the uh, Yugoslav episode. Still know about that because it's the former Yugoslavia conflict. UN Assistance Mission for Rwanda or UNAMIR. Which we're
0: going to talk about next time, so mm-hmm. stay tuned.
1: UN Operation in Somalia 2 or UNISOM, which is where the famous Black Hawk Down incident happened. The UN Interim Administration Mission in Kosovo, which is still in operation today. UN slash African Mission to Darfur, or UN AMID. And then finally, the UN Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or Manescu, which John was also part of. So there's that. Shout out to John again. <laughs> and that's it for the peacekeepers.
0: Yeah, they've done.
1: I think that's it for the UN. Yeah. Really?
0: I mean, my favorite UN special agency, though, is UNESCO, which we haven't talked about. And it's like the happiest of the UN organizations. (laughs) Uh, UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And I'm a big fan of UNESCO. There's some UNESCO World Heritage Sites close to where we live. And we're going to be doing some fun things with them. And Jonah's pulling out... Oh. Has I have a, a book. Whole book on World Heritage. Sites. I have a
1: book that was literally on the shelf behind me. That's of the World Heritage. It has every single World Heritage site in here.
0: Um, uh, fun fact: the place that I stayed in in Finland, the for, well, where my host families live. Shout out to them. <laughs> um, is the the downtown or like the center of the city is a UNESCO World Heritage site. It's the oldest wooden city in Europe or in the world. I can't remember now, but it's pretty cool. Uh, and. We're definitely gonna be doing a special episode at a UNESCO World Heritage Site.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. But since we have time, <laughs> uh I'm gonna I'm gonna list some of the ones that I've been uh, let's list the ones that are in Canada, shall we? All right. Since so we have time. So the first one here is the historic district of Quebec, <laughs> which if you have never been to, any of you, you are missing out, because Quebec City is awesome. That's true. And it's beautiful. Uh, Anthony, and any
0: angry Albertan who wants to boycott us because we said Quebec was nice can happily do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna send we're gonna send the Western and Eastern provinces to family therapy, but that's a that's a bit of a teaser for something we haven't announced yet. <laughs> You'll yeah. see what I mean in a in a bit. So another one is uh, I'm gonna. Butcher this pronunciation, Skang Gwai, or Anthony Island in BC, which is on Haida Gwaii, which for those of you who have no idea who, what Haida Gwaii is, it was at one point known as the Queen Charlotte Islands. Waterton Glacier International Peace Park,
0: which is about two hours south of where we, well, two, three hours south of where we were. Yeah,
1: it's on the border with the Montana. United States. Miguasha National Park, which is in eastern Quebec on the Gaspé Peninsula. Old Town Lunenburg on Nova Scotia. L'Anse aux National Historic Parks, which if people were at our last trivia, that was the answer to one of our questions was which province did the Vikings attempt to settle, which was Newfoundland.
0: Oh, yeah. Shout out to everyone who came to trivia. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We already kind of did that, did which we? is weird. Yeah, we did because, but we went, it was oh yeah before trivia happened, but we right. still thanked I everyone. Forgot.
0: That's why I forgot about
1: it. Uh, Nahini National Park in Northwest Territories, Glow Morn National Park on the island of Newfoundland. My
0: parents went
1: there. Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is one of the trips we're going to be making very soon, hopefully. We keep teasing it and then having to postpone it. Yeah.
0: Scheduling conflicts.
1: They're a bitch. Yeah. Head smashed in Buffalo Jump, which is super cool. It's super cool, and I'd love to go back there. That's near Fort
0: McLeod.
1: McLeod. I almost have Fort McMurray. No. No.
0: Wrong direction.
1: Uh, Glacier Bay, which is on the border of Alaska and Yukon and British Columbia. Wood Buffalo National Park, which is in northern Alberta. And finally, the Canadian Rocky Mountain Parks, which include Banff and Jasper and Yoho, all that stuff. Anyway, yeah. So Canada has ten. And I've actually
0: been to a sizable number of those. Which
1: are, I've been to: dinosaur head smashed in, Quebec, old Quebec, and the well the national parks. Yeah,
0: those are the ones I've been to. Plus, um, no, I can't remember the other. Yeah, ones.
1: but you've been everywhere. Lindsay, people know Lindsay. Lindsay knows people like in every single corner of the earth.
0: Yeah, I do <laughs> actually. Well, not every single corner, but at least, like, a large chunk of it.
1: She is the United Nations of Panastoria. My, my
0: Facebook page is the United Nations. <laughs>
1: yeah. Literally, she knows people from, like... For those of you who don't know, my step... The reason why Lindsay and I met is because my stepmom was her financial advisor. And... <laughs> Shout out, Shelly. Hi, Shell. I know you're not listening to this, but... If you are, hi. Um... <laughs> uh, The one time
0: she listens. The one time
1: she listens. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And then, uh, but uh, the thing is, is that, like I was saying, I was was talking about someone that you knew. I can't remember who. And I was like, oh, it looks like they're from this place. And she's like, yeah, well, she knows people everywhere. (laughs)
0: All right. We're going through our uh, Panastoria statistics. And seeing all the countries that people had listened in, and uh, we'd still like to check it out every now and then because it's pretty fun to see where all of you are from. And yeah, oh. it was pretty funny. I'm like, oh, I think that might be that person. Yeah,
1: it, every <laughs> single time we like point something out, and but then I every promise so you, often. there are some
0: that are showing up that I have no connection to. So shout out to Thailand, those
1: people. Cyprus, Bahrain. we don't know, Bahrain. Yeah, what the hell is up with Bahrain? <laughs> cool. Hello, like, we're, no, we're 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 not saying. I'm not saying that to criticize you. We just were like, really? <laughs> yeah. We're reaching out that far? But uh, Apparently anyway. we have
0: lots of downloads in Spain, too, of all Spain, places. Spain,
1: yeah. I mean, do you know people? A who couple. I don't
0: Spain? know if they're listening probably. or
1: not. <laughs> Let's just say probably. But yeah. Also, of course, shout out to all of our listeners in the United States. Brian. Brian's been handing out that. He's been handing out. He's our- been
0: the sole source of our budget for a year. Uh yeah. <laughs> which
1: $4 a month for a year <laughs> which we very much appreciate Brian.
0: Because it actually does help. So uh, on that note, more pandering, please help us on Patreon if you really like this.
1: Yeah, Thanks. for sure. Thanks. So, uh so yeah, that's it for UN.
0: Oh, other really important agency real quick that we should probably mention given the security council is the International Atomic Energy Agency. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, kind of an important one.
1: I mean, it's been a lot more relevant in the modern or in recent times, yes. especially with the thanks whole...
0: North I, thanks North
1: Korea. Thanks, Iran. I mean, Iran's been... You know what? I'm going to... Fuck it. I'm going to say it. Say what you want about Iran. They were super cooperative with this they deal. Were. And then the... Yeah. I'm calling him the usurper. Mm-hmm. Completely... I like to
0: refer to him as Agent Orange.
1: That works as well. Completely screwed that up. So thanks for that. Asshole. Yeah. Any mega listeners can just, can you not, like, don't listen to our podcast. We've
0: decided to, we're, uh, we're, we're taking back the, we're taking the hashtag of making history great, make history great again. No, make, history, make history relevant, relevant again. again. I'm sorry, I was just.
1: You're so excited. Hating
0: on mega people in my head. <laughs> um, we're making history relevant again. So uh, throw that at mega supporters.
1: Yeah, if you're a mega supporter, if you're a racist or a sexist or anything, don't listen to our podcast. We want nothing to do with you.
0: Yeah. And on that note.
1: <laughs> on that note, do you have any good news? Not really. I have I have something. I didn't read too much into this, unfortunately, but they may have found uh they're work they've they're close to finding a cure for the sting of a box jellyfish.
0: Oh, cool.
1: Yeah, which is like if for those of you who don't know, box jellyfish is It's one of the most poisonous uh, animals in Australia, I think. I think it's the most, actually the most poisonous animal in Australia. And its sting is unbelievably painful because it shoots these barbs into your, like deep into your muscles and into your nerves. And it is extremely painful. Well, they may have found a cure for the pain, which is unbelievable because morphine doesn't even work. But yeah, so uh, they they found they may have found a cure that not only relieves the pain but counteracts the toxins so you probably won't die. I mean, they already had a cure for it anyway. It's just that they didn't have a cure for the pain. So you'll you, you'll live, but you'll be in excruciating pain. So the the fact that they found a way to stop the pain, that's pretty incredible. I know it's not a huge thing, but
0: still good news. Uh the other good news, I guess it's not from this week, but I Sent it to you about, um, meetings between Kosovo and, uh, Serbia. Yes. Uh, Merkel of Germany and Macron in France are spearheading a attempt to get Kosovo and Serbia to finally come to a real agreement and not the temporary one that is still holding them (laughs) apart. And by apart, I mean like apart from fighting each other. So... It's not entirely good news. It could end badly. But the fact that they're even sitting down to talk is good news, I think. so.
1: Well, the fact that in recent times they managed to negotiate an exchange of territory. Yeah. Is pretty. I mean, also Serbia said they are now more willing to accept Kosovo's sovereignty. Subject to the human rights of Serbians living within Kosovo, which I think is a good. There's been a lot of good steps forward and it just seems to be keep. It seems to keep moving forward, I mean, yeah, there's some setbacks here and there, but it's moving forward and forward so
0: it's still positive
1: i mean in can- i mean Canada, where we are kosovo is is recognized as a, a as a country, but in places like russia serbia China they're not I don't think we have any listeners there but
0: well, we did for that Well, we, did it. we do
1: have listeners in Serbia. I know that. So um, don't hate us. We're just going by our own country's State, laws. State in fact. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, the other good news that I literally just read just now was that the Pride Parade in Ottawa is possibly going to be the biggest in history.
1: Like in Canadian history or world yeah. history? Oh, that's cool.
0: Or at least in Ottawa history for sure. That is but cool. But I think it's going to be the biggest in Canada this year possibly.
1: That would so, be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Pride's coming up. Pride pretty, is pretty soon
0: approaching we're gonna have a special episode for that
1: yeah for sure hopefully work something out with uh chestnut pride which i'm kind of working on okay but uh
0: cool. i'm gonna be uh airdrie pride is having their first ever parade this year in june and uh, i'll be there with my my awesome soap company
1: oh she made this amazing looking soap oh sorry
0: i made a cool soap for it but i'm not i'm, like I'm it. cutting
1: it out i'm cutting it out i'll cut it out uh, sorry <laughs> okay. sorry, oh, sorry. Oh,
0: you can say that much
1: I can say. Oh, Just don't say what it is. <laughs> no, I won't. Oh, well, she made soap.
0: I made a cool soap for it. Okay, details to come. <laughs>
1: Sm- smells really good. Anyway, I'm, I'm saying too much. But
0: <laughs> we should probably close this off. We're rambling now.
1: Probably yeah, but I, before we stuff is off. Like when Lindsay was gone, I went over to her place on Tuesday because her dad went out of town and she needed someone to look after her pets. Which, uh, for those of you who don't know, she has. Two adorable dogs.
0: Um, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll know all about them.
1: <laughs> Cubarino, the Puparino.
0: He has his own hashtag.
1: Yeah. And then Guinness. Guinness. And Cub, for those of you who don't know, Cub is a is still a puppy.
0: He turns two in July, so he's insane.
1: He's crazy. He goes nuts. Uh, and then Guinness is, would you say, crotchety old man? Yeah. yeah. I
0: imagine. It's funny. So I live on an acreage, and so our dogs have like three acres to run on and people run they'll go you know go running on our road or whatever and the dogs decide they have to bark and it's really funny because guinness will go out there and he'll stand there and just bark at them and bark at them and it's almost as if you can just see him like saying get off my lawn (laughs) and then like he keeps barking at them until they're past his prop our property and this one day i was watching him he just shook his head and come back when they left like all proud of himself (laughs) for barking at the people it was pretty funny
1: yeah i love i love those dogs but uh I went over there, and then she also has two cats, Rambo and Rocky. And Rocky. So I show up there on Tuesday <sighs> uh, evening, and the dogs give me a warm welcome because they're outside. And I open the door, and the alarm goes off. And at that moment, I realized they didn't give me the uh, code to the alarm. So I'm literally standing there in the house as this alarm is shrieking at me. It There's like two minutes of this. I messaged Lindsay on Facebook and was like, Lindsay, alarm passcode word now. And didn't get a response. And it like was going on a minute and a half. And then I finally, out of desperation, phoned her. And she answers and I'm just like, Lindsay, I need I need the passcode to the alarm. And she's like, oh, uh, uh <laughs> and gives me the alarm code. And luckily everything like but I was literally at a point where I was rehearsing what I was going to say to the cops when they showed up (laughs) because I didn't know what to do. I was literally standing there kind of freaking out, like literally like help, help. But yeah, so that was just (laughs) the funny thing that happened in our lives.
0: Meanwhile, I was in Nashville (laughs) drinking a margarita. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Good times. Oh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, Lindsay had a, you had a great time and it was the best. Yeah, I'm, the best. Uh, I'm supposed to be going to PEI next week, although that might not happen. It depends on if I get this certain job or not.
0: So, yeah, help for a reminder we still have day jobs because, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, for Hence, Patreon, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, there's a possibility I won't be able to go to Prince Edward Island, but if I do, I'm going to be doing the same thing. Uh, Lindsay did while well, she was in Kentucky and kind of take over the Instagram channel for like f- the four days that I'm there and hopefully take some cool stuff. But yeah, anyway, look forward to that. I'll let you guys know if I'm going.
0: We've got some other fun things we're going to try and try and experiment with over the summer. Just extra content, things we can yeah. do. Uh, it's coming up. Well, it's our, been our one-year anniversary so
1: Yeah. I gave her cupcakes for, with a...
0: Thanks for sticking with us this long. It's I, been a journey.
1: I literally gave her cupcakes with... With a card on... Well, a sticky note on the top that says, Happy Paniversary!
0: So thanks for sticking with us this long, fam.
1: Yeah, we've been, it's been getting a journey. <laughs> more viewers. It's been amazing. We're almost at 2,200
0: downloads
1: Downloads now. And uh, hope you liked our Titanic episode. Hope you liked this episode.
0: Uh, comment, suggestion, feedback of all kinds. Greatly appreciated. And obviously your money would also be appreciated. Absolutely. But especially... Just your comments and feedback. We really appreciate hearing from all of you and engaging with you. So,
1: also, I'm, I'm probably going to announce. I sh- let's. We might as well announce this now. On Tuesday, June fourth. Tuesday or Monday, June third is actually the anniversary of when we released the Korean War episode, which is our first episode. And then, so the next day, on, we have to do it the next day because Lindsay has to work. Uh, she, uh, we are going to get together. And we're going to live stream us listening to our first episode.
0: And uh, think of it as a director's commentary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to do that live. We're hopefully going to get it recorded so that it can be up for other people. But what we're going to do is we're going to sit down, listen to our our episode. We're going to basically be like, okay, we're starting now. So you can listen along to the episode with us. So that's going to happen on. I guess that's the fifth, June fourth, June fourth. It's yeah. going to happen,
0: and I think we'll do it as a live stream over Facebook and Instagram, um, uh, possibly
1: Twitch. I don't possibly. know.
0: Possibly,
1: well, we'll figure. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll figure
0: something. Stay tuned out. to our, our social media in general for more announcements on it. We'll have a bit more yeah.
1: of a flush up. Anyway, uh, yeah. So that's going to happen. Uh, next episode is going to be a downer, uh, and we apologize. It is going to be the Rwandan. Civil War and the Rwandan genocide.
0: Which is kind of why we wanted to talk about the UN first, since uh, Rwanda was one of its most famous peacekeeping missions. Yeah. Probably it more was, famous than Bosnia in a lot of ways. So. I was
1: way more famous than Bosnia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, just be prepared for that. Again, we understand if you can't listen to the whole thing. Yeah. Because, again, like if you thought the stuff we talked about in Yugoslavia and Bosnia was bad
0: not gonna get better
1: no it's it's gonna get worse mm, yeah it's gonna get way worse so that's happening but then after that we're kind of going back into happy stuff i think
0: for the most part we've got, <laughs> some, we've got some pretty good like interesting varied topics it'll be it'll be an adventure for the rest of this season i think but yeah
1: summer we got a lot of stuff planned for the summer so Poss- i mean we got everything. another trivia night oh yeah yeah for sure we'll let you guys know about that but anyway we're kind of pandering now a bit much so i think this is a good place to stop they love us i know they love us (laughs) so all
0: right they'll they'll stop loving us if we keep going so we'll probably wrap this up (laughs) yeah so
1: anyway uh thank you guys so much do you have any last comments no no all right well
0: read my blog post
1: yeah please read the blog post it's really good like i'm not being biased it actually is really good uh not saying that i doubted you but I know what you mean. Anyway. I'm picking
0: up where we're putting
1: down. Thank you guys so much. This is Giona. And Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a good day. Cheers.